G'day, humans. Welcome to the show that doesn't deal in absolutes, that doesn't deal in blacks and whites. So many shows, so many politicians, so many commentators, so much of your social media feed expects either your agreement or disagreement, either your furious love or your furious anger. I do not. I ask only that we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we wrestle with ideas we reject as well as those we think are right. Let's escape the dogmas of conventional wisdom. Let's have conversations that straddle the cultural divide and make us all just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, a brilliant man well-known to Australians and one of the most elusive guests of this podcast ever. He's only ever appeared on three podcasts in his life, despite being requested as a guest many, many, many times. He doesn't like talking about himself. In fact, when I invited him on the show, and I had invited him on several times on different incarnations of various shows that I've done, he said, I'll only talk to you if we can talk strictly about the project that I'm promoting and not about me, (laughs) which I thought was quite endearing. Don't worry, we talk about him anyway, uh, because obviously I'm not going to take instructions from my guests about what I can ask them. Um, But Todd Sampson is something of a national treasure. He's originally Canadian. He's really a documentarian. I sort of was trying to wrestle with how you would describe Todd to people who don't know him. Uh, And you'll hear me try to try to explain who he is to him <laughs> with limited success, I suppose. But he first came to prominence in Australia as a panellist on one of Australia's most popular uh, panel shows, which is called Gruen. And the panel show, it sounds a bit odd if you don't know it, but it's basically all about advertising. It's about breaking down how advertisers and marketers manipulate us. But through that prism, it ends up talking about all of the big things that that Australia and the world are grappling with. So Todd, although he is on the, the panel as a sort of token expert marketing former ad man providing his insights, becomes a sort of whimsical, insightful, philosophical voice of sanity to Australians about all of the things that we're dealing with. And this has been running for more than a decade now, and he's become a household name as a result. And as an offshoot of his celebrity slash notoriety, he has embarked upon a number of documentaries that he's made. He writes them himself. He produces them himself. He he essentially is interested in the brain, the body, psychology, sociology, all of the things that make us who we are. And his latest incarnation of this is a big two-part special, which is about to go to air on Channel 10 in Australia, called Mirror Mirror. It's getting a ton of uh, advertising in Australia. It's a big special event that they want all Australians to sit down and to talk about and to watch and to wrestle with. It's about body image and the way that we judge ourselves and the way that we are derailing our psychology with self-judgment about our own physicality. I wanted to talk to Todd not just about that, but about his extraordinary life. He climbed Mount Everest. He's one of those guys. You know, he did went all over the world embedding himself in the most bizarre different subcultures as part of his television show Body Hack, uh, which has been, you know, nominated for all kinds of awards that I won't go into. I, I won't preface this conversation any further by simply saying if you don't know Todd Sampson, you should go and seek out some of these documentaries online. If you do know him, you will no doubt enjoy. 
this conversation with me and the one and only Todd Sampson. I, I try to stay out of the media until I sort of need to be in the media. And uh, once I'm in, I'm all in, so it's fine. Why, why is that when so many people at the moment have such a passion to be observed? I'm primarily interested in creating content with some sort of meaning or some sort of challenge, or, and I'm less interested in being a, a sort of another voice of the cacophony of voices that are often underqualified on a range of topics that should be left to the professionals. So yeah. I, I, I stay out because uh, I haven't worked in the advertising industry for seven years. So there's no need for me to comment on that. There's people far more qualified than me and more relevant than me in that space. And uh, so when I'm making a documentary, which I dedicate my entire life to for that time period, that's something I'm happy to talk about. Mm. That's refreshing, uh, given how we're all expected to have an opinion about everything on social media at the moment. <laughs> and, and given that also, like, my life is the exact opposite of that, where I'm expected to have a range of insights into a large variety of different things as a broadcaster. And it is, it is refreshing to encounter people who are like, you know what, I'll do my thing and I'll let it speak for itself. And I'm not going to have to it's not my job to break down lots of complicated different things in ways that everybody's going to understand. Like that is my job. It's not your job. And it's good that you don't take it on. Yeah. I, I think it is a, a kinder, softer shade of fake news and I've done it. You know, I, I did a, I remember I once did, I did a documentary called life on the line. Life on the line was a, a, a series about the laws of physics and how they impact us and how they're, you know, they never change regardless of your, your, your point of view. And I did a series of experiments and I had a, you know, a swinging ball come at me. I bungee jumped only using phone books attached to bungee cords. And I did lots of things. <laughs> and I remember at the end of that series, I thought to myself, that is a really good, interesting series that should have been hosted by someone else. <laughs> Oh man, I've been there. I have definitely been there. Yep. I've had whole television shows in the States where I'm like, I'm not right for this. Why have they got me here? I mean, this is not, this is not me. I don't know why we even threw, oh, I even threw my hat in the ring here. That's something that only comes with age. I think, I think when you're young, you don't know yourself well enough to necessarily know what you're good at and what you're not good at. So you try everything and gradually as you get a bit more mature, you understand what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. Hopefully. Yeah. And, and, I remember when I first started on Groon 12 years ago and the lure and the gravitational pull of, of, of ego and being on television and people recognizing you and in the street. And, and in the first year, it is, it's incredibly charming and luring. But by that stage, I had already achieved a lot of the things I wanted to achieve in my life. I'd already had a, a career that I had decided to change. And I, like I'd already... I was in my forties, you know, yeah. like I didn't, I didn't grow up with that spotlight on me. It's I, a good I, time to get famous, your forties. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But still, I, I can understand what it must be like for, um, you know, for someone who's spent their entire uh, childhood or, you know, the majority of their early adulthood 
in the spotlight. Yeah, you mentioned Gruen. Uh, that, for people who aren't in Australia, is a very, very popular panel show that you're best known for, or I suppose was the first place that brought you to, to Australia's attention. But um, And the reason why you said that we can talk about anything is because we had privately said that you don't want to talk about yourself. You just want to talk about your show that is about to happen. And I thought that was that was quite sweet because I identified with it as well. I often find myself in conversations with cousins or family members and I just pause and go, can we not talk about me? I'm so bored of me. I live with me all the time. In isolation, I feel like I have an overabundance of me. I'd be much <laughs> more interested in talking about something else, either you or something completely abstract, like the nature of the cosmos and how big things are. Uh, so give people, I, this is all I will, I will ask of you in terms of putting yourself in context for people who don't know you. But since almost half of my listeners are in the US, uh, I was trying to think of how to explain you to them. I would, I would take maybe a bit of Tim Ferriss and a bit of John Oliver, maybe, and a bit of, I don't, there is no real, a bit of Ariana Huffington. I don't know. How, how who are you in an American context? Well, I, I so I, I, how to describe myself, not certain. How others have described me being in the public eye, I'm fairly clear about that. Uh, so I remember one review, which I thought was interesting and uh, uh, and slightly obscure, but if, uh, if Bear Grylls had a child <laughs> with Brian Cox, that would be me. Now, <laughs> I, liked, I liked that on a number of levels. I liked the fact that Brian Cox would have figured out how he could have a child and he would have unwillingly had it with Bear Grylls. And, 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 the, and the two shows being, you know, there are two programs that they're doing being completely sort of opposite of each other. And in many ways, that's the type of television shows I try to make. Mm-hmm. I have a, a super inquisitive mind as a child uh, and and I kept that childlike inquisitiveness, and I'd always had an interest in science because I saw science as a language that explained the world that I could actually understand. And then on the other side, I had been a super adventurous kid and always trying to sort of get away from my home and explore. And all I wanted to do growing up on a small island on the east coast of Canada was escape. And so I smashed those two realities together to kind of create this, what I'd like to think is often adventurous, smart television. Yeah, and if Americans don't know Brian Cox, then they, they can substitute Bill Nye, the science guy, probably. That's good. I like Bear Grylls meets, uh, meets Bill Nye or, or Brian Cox. What, so where did advertising come in? Um, that, was, uh, that was the result of my insecurity and fear of living without money. I grew up in a family that didn't uh, have money. It's a, it's a fairly typical story in many ways. My mom was a checkout girl at KFC and my dad worked on the factory floor of Coca-Cola and neither of them had any formal education. And I had a very where, young- where, where were you again, Todd? I was, in, I was on Cape Breton Island. Uh, it's the arc of life. I was born in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Get out. Island. Get out. So yeah. Nova Scotia. So that all of my images of Nova Scotia, correct me if I'm wrong, wild, windswept, cold, hardy, uh, communal. Yeah, a lot of people have this idea in their mind when I say the east coast of Canada of um you know, a red haired, freckled kid frolicking in the rolling hills. 
uh, the Anne of Green uh, Gables of Samson Land. Annie would die in Sydney, Nova Scotia. <laughs> uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia is a former coal mining uh, town that's under snow for six uh, six months of the year. Uh, it's 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 a tough but beautiful place. But you know, Annie would die there for sure. <laughs> okay, so young Todd, uh, young Todd escapes, and you say advertising was a, a backup plan or a, a oh a way yeah. To make so money. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I, I went through university. I studied a general degree um, and uh, a general arts degree, and then I didn't know what to do with my life. So, uh, what do you do when you don't know what to do with your life? You do an MBA. So I ended up doing an MBA and then one day uh, the marketing lecturer, who I actually really enjoyed, uh, she fell down a set of stairs and broke her back. And the result of that was they had to get a guest lecturer to lecture on her behalf. So I showed up at the guest lecture uh, and it was a creative director from an advertising agency. And he spoke about imagination and creativity and how, you know, one idea could have an enormous impact, uh, both commercially, but also socially. It had the ability to make change. He also clarified that arguably advertising is uh, investment banking for creative people. Uh, it is the one industry where creative people could make a lot of money. Mm. And so I got really excited when I heard him talk. And I remember I walked down and to the bottom where the where he was lecturing and and I nervously walked up to him uh, and I I reached out to shake his hand he was a bit busy packing his bag and I introduced myself and I said you know my name is Todd Sampson I, I want to get into advertising and he just looked up at me glanced up at me and he said under his breath good fucking luck with that <laughs> I love that story. I mean, the fact that it begins with somebody breaking their back, it's like a its like a flashback in a Wes Anderson movie or something. Uh, like, how did you begin? Well, it all began when the, yes, when the actual yes. lecturer fell down some stairs. Ah! Oh, my God, she broke her back. And then, uh, anyway, very exactly. dramatic. I mean, that it's so interesting that you frame advertising that way because it makes me – I'm just remembering for the first time – in decades, um, an exchange that I had with John Singleton, who was Australia's greatest ad man uh, and who went to my high school, Fort Street, and I was uh, giving a speech at high school when I was in probably maybe year 10 or 11 about something or other. There were, you know, fancy alum who were who were there for some dinner. And Justice Kirby, who was a high court justice, and John Singleton, who was the great ad man were both there and at drinky poos after whatever the event was, there was a sort of a meet and greet type thing. And justice Kirby said, what would you, what do you want to do with your life, young man? Uh, and I said, Oh, I don't know. I, w- I want to go either into journalism or entertainment or, or advertising. And he said, John, come over here. And he waved over John Singleton, uh, who was drunk, of course, as he always was. And, uh, hmm. and Kirby, uh, Kirby said to him, give this boy a, a job john all the private schools they always look after their own we're a public school we have to stand up for public school kids give this boy a job so singo arranged for a a job interview between me and whoever his second in command was and uh and they basically said do you want to come on board as a junior copywriter uh and i was going to say yes and then i got a job offer this was uh i guess this was 2 years after i'd given this speech and and met them when i when i'd left school uh when in my first year of uni i got a job offer from the abc 
to be an assistant writer on Peter Berner's new television show, Backburner, and I moved down to Melbourne for six months and did that, and that was the fork in the road between advertising and entertainment slash media slash journalism. So we all end up in the same place through different routes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, John is a bit of a John's, John Singleton's a bit of a, a, a legend, uh, infamous in many ways when it comes to the advertising business. I'm sort of glad you took that fork and you 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 took that other direction, Josh. I don't know what you would have been like uh, traveling down the. The advertising part. Yeah, I'd probably be less, no doubt, I'd but... probably be less fulfilled and a lot more rich. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about you. In fact, let's talk about the show directly, and then we can meander back to to your other uh, other other exploits. So, Mirror Mirror. Uh, this this will come out on the day that uh, that Mirror Mirror debuts on the telly. What's the genesis of this? What are you trying to explore? Well. Uh, body image dissatisfaction is a societal crisis. It's a crisis I have been part of. It's a crisis I've played a role in in my advertising career. But I, I think the relevance obviously jumps forward when you become a parent and you just see the world in which your teenagers live. And so I wanted to use my voice uh, to discuss this, to start a conversation about it. And I have to say, it is it is an incredibly complicated, uh, it is a, a very touchy uh, subject, and no one is immune uh, to, the, to the sort of impact that dissatisfaction has. And so I thought, I'm going to make a film about it. I'm going to make a film about wh- how we see ourselves, and, and I'm going to do it through the eyes and mirrors of some extraordinary people. And uh, and that that really was was the genesis. That's that's how it began. And how did you figure out how to do it? What format to do it in? I mean, we can get to the stories in a second, but I'm also interested in the mechanics, and I think people are interested in the mechanics of how a television show gets made. Obviously, you have existing cred because you're a celebrity, and you've made other documentaries that have done very well. But when you go to Channel Ten and you go, "I've got this idea," or do you go to the production company first and go, "Let's flesh out how this is going to look and what we really want to explore." No, I produce it myself and I write it myself. Um, so it's, I, I carry around in my phone uh, a series, a number of shows that I want to make. I probably have 10 shows now that are in rough format sitting on my phone. And, uh, and, and, and I, I approach them at different times and some of them feel right for me at certain times. And in this case, uh, I had, as, as you know, I had just finished filming a number of years, five years of an adventure science documentary series called Body Hack, where I travel around and embed in different cultures around the world, you know, with the snipe, the Iraqi snipers during the Battle of Mosul or, or in, in Palestine, in Gaza, in the protests. And I embed with them and try to learn from them. Uh, COVID came and there was no way. I wanted to have a break anyway from that series. It was a successful long series. I think we did 19 episodes. Uh, the one episode that we didn't actually make was I was in Rio doing samba dance when COVID broke and had to be emergency evacuated. <laughs> wow. That's the only show I've ever filmed partially that never actually went to air. But, but, I, but COVID prompted change. It prompted me to rethink what's next. And I wanted to film in Australia. You know, I had no option, but it was my first time filming a documentary solely, really, in this country. And uh, and 
so that, yeah, that was, uh, that's what got me there. So I, I did, I went to 10 with the idea, 10 heard it immediately. I could see the, the, the combination of excitement and fear in their eyes. And I thought, okay, we're onto something here. Mm, mm. And it's two parts. It's two parts. Yeah. It's, it's two nineties. That's big. Three hours. It's, big. it's two feature films basically. And, and- uh, it's, it didn't start that way, Josh. Like it started as what I thought were going to be two sixties. But uh, the problem with doing a topic like uh, body image dissatisfaction and body dysmorphia and how we see ourselves in the mirror is that it, there's so many things that need to be covered for that story to at least at least uh, have a, a a voice, a proper yeah, voice. Yeah. Now, the result of that, of course, is you skate thin over a lot of things and don't have the opportunity to drop deep on everything. But in many ways, it's designed like the social media that we're talking about. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised social media because let's let's just touch on that. I mean, I am, needless to say, as the father of, uh, of four-year-old twins, somewhat ambivalent about what the hell is going to happen when they start wanting devices when they're seven or eight or nine. Uh, and I'm a fan of, of John Haidt and people in his circle who think that, you know, really children should not be comparing themselves. We should not be stoking the adolescent need for attention uh, and need for peer comparison and self-judgment until kids are old enough to be able to psychologically handle that. And that, that's probably late teens. So like at the very earliest, people below 16 shouldn't be on social media. And yet, of course, I know that the imperative to do so will be coming much earlier than that. To what extent is sort of adolescent social media a factor in it, the concerns that you have about body image? Well, first, it's worth uh, qualifying uh, social media because it's easy to blame social media for everything and the woes of society. Uh, but that's actually missing the point. And it's actually because we compared. So the two things that come out in this film and, and two things that we know from the science is that we have an innate desire to compare. Yeah. And we also have an innate desire towards beauty. Now, corporations, organizations have realized that we have a glitch in our brain that they could exploit for profit, and they've done that. Uh, the problem is originally social media was created by sophisticated adult minds addressed at adults, but that's not what happened. Those sophisticated adult minds have created a matrix. Some would say a matrix of discontent of which our children live. And, you know, in this country, when you think about social media, you, you, you think, okay, well, everyone's on. Yeah, everyone's on. There's 4.2 billion people worldwide. And in Australia alone, we spend over 40% of our waking hours online. And a big chunk of that is on social media. So, yes, it is the water in which we swim, but it's really the water in which our children swim. And that's a lot of the focus of the of the documentary. Mm. I mean, and how do you balance what is good about aspiring towards, I suppose, a more healthy body? Like I'm, I've just finished doing a podcast for Nova, which was called The Rush. And each episode we looked at it, it was very similar. It's, it's funny that we're talking right now because the last episode just went to air last, just dropped last week. And in each episode, I look at a way in which our brains are attracted to and addicted to and also repulsed by various rushes, dopamine hits that our brains can get. So one episode's about sex, one episode's about drugs, one episode's about sugar and fat and and so on and so forth. And 
in in that context, I and I'm I'm sort of subjecting myself to each of these experiences as we go along, which sounds familiar to you from from Body Hack. But for the for the runner's high sort of adrenaline, uh, sorry, not adrenaline, um, endorphin episode, I went to a boot camp and subsequently lost almost forty pounds, about 15, 16, 17 kilos off my pandemic chubby weight to being pretty lean now and I feel fantastic and I look better than I have in a decade and part of that is vanity part of that is body image part of that is pride but I I I mean a, a, a person who is against fat shaming could also say that I'm playing into a narrative about the way that people are supposed to look and I was probably perfectly healthy before anyway so should I not be proud well, you should be proud, but you just touched on so many different topics. Uh, I, I, before, can you hold that last one about you in, in your own body transformation? And I, I just want to put a full stop or at least a, a, a question mark, a squiggly line up top of the full stop uh, around social media and teenagers' brains. Yeah. So what we know, and I, I spent, as you know, I spent five years making a, a Discovery Science documentary series called Redesign my brain. And that series was focused really on the, the revolutionary idea of brain plasticity. Metaphorically, our brain is plastic. It adapts to the stimulus and environment around us. It's what makes us remarkable. And it's also what can make us incredibly destructive. So, but what we know is that the uh, the brain of a young person doesn't fully develop until the mid-20s. So it's all there, but the front and the back or the side of the brain do not fully connect. So the goal for a lot of parenting is to, is, to, um, is to hold back as much brain damage, especially when the brain is so malleable up until that age of, of 25. So if we can keep alcohol out of the way, if we can keep caffeine out of the way, if we can keep um, um, drugs out of the way, if we can keep those things away, it will help preserve that sort of adaptation and changing of the brain to become the person that we become. We should also keep social media out of the way. Because what we do know is that social media spikes dopamine. And dopamine, which historically has always been associated with, you know, with love and with with sex and sometimes with exercise, is now associated with social media. So we need to be careful. But my personal opinion is that prohibition, that didn't end well, is not the way to go. And that the best way to help manage kids online is set some parameters and guidelines and jump in with them because we are not going back. There is no reverse utopia that we're all traveling to. It, it, this is the world in which we live. Now, well, Brian, I, I mean, are we, I, I, I take your point that we're not going back, but, you know, when cigarettes first became widespread, one could easily have said, well, we're not going back to a to an era without cigarettes. No, but we are going to go to an era where we understand their use and their harms better and we, we understand that there are contexts in which they happen. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if in 20 or 30 years we look back at the way that we use devices today where any time we're feeling remotely bored, we pull them out of our pockets and we just start plunging our psyche into other people's comments and judgments and arguments, we may regard that a bit like we now regard smoking on an aeroplane. Like, I can't believe that they didn't understand that there was a time and a place for that stuff. I'm not certain, Josh. I, I'm not certain that that will ever happen. 
uh, that we, I mean, it, I, I'm not, and I'm not certain we can equate, uh, I mean, I like to, <laughs> we can equate the behavioral change that smoking specifically had with the behavioral change that uh, social media or arguably the internet or the mobility has had. It will be different in the future, but I think the progression is not going backwards. It's going to go forwards into n- new areas of connectivity, new areas of us uh, reaching out with each other and inter you know, and, and weaving our worlds together. Uh, I wish it would go back to uh, a meditative state where we would all be um, more centered, but I'm not certain that's going to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited by the possibilities of the future in which we are all sort of neurally linked and there are much more efficacious ways of interacting with each other and we've got our augmented reality going on and I can tap the side of my head and I can bring up a conversation with you or with anyone else. I just mean that I think that we will have ways of prioritizing our conversations that aren't reliant exclusively on grabbing our attention the way that the imperatives of social media currently are so that there will be hopefully other values that we will that we will elevate and in this analogy with cigarettes it's not about um, maybe cigarettes is an imperfect analogy every analogy is but it, it's not it's not about winding the clock back it's just realizing that an airplane is not a place for smoking and maybe sitting on the toilet uh, you know doing a shit is not is not a place to get to parachute your brain into an argument that's taking place on the other side of the world about something that you have no relationship yeah. to but but that's not that's not luddite that's not anti-tech maybe sitting on the toilet is a is a moment to engage with uh, the great meditation that's going on amongst all people you know who are sitting on the toilet or something you know maybe there are other ways other more sophisticated ways that we're going to be able to plug in so i'm not i'm not pro plug in or anti plug in i'm anti the way that we are currently allowing 22-year-old Silicon Valley software designers with skateboards in Menlo Park to be the sole arbiters of how we engage with tech. Yes, and and that, Josh, is a big motivation for making the film that I just made. Because I think when you have awareness of the matrix in which we live, it allows you to better use the matrix. The point I was making is is believing it's going to go away or artificially taking it away, thinking that you're able to protect yourself from the thing you live in. I think that's not the way to do it, especially with kids today. Hmm. I think the way is, I think it's through understanding. I think it's through understanding conversations and being in it, not being outside thinking and, you know, thinking it's, I hope the future will be better because we see it through our own frame and we didn't have it. When I was young, my phone was attached to the, to the wall, but my dad is 80 years old and he's on social media and he, I contact him every day because of that. And it's, it's brilliant. Hmm. And, but I see it going forward, not backwards, but I agree that it will be different as well. I guess it's the. I guess I just don't. I'm not as optimistic, perhaps, as you are, that we have the capacity to stand up to the forces of the algorithms that are tugging at us without having a uh, an absolute timeout. Maybe not a total prohibition, but I mean, certainly a. Pro- well, we would both agree that there's a prohibition at a certain age, right? You don't give a five year old uh, uh, an Instagram account. So at some point, no. You- but unfortunately, Josh, many give them phones. Because phones is considered by many uh, a modern day dummy, uh, mm. so I, I see so many kids poking phones, and I even remember my own girls, and we held out as long as we could, but 
we we fell to the onslaught. But I, I do remember um, uh, the first time that Coco, my oldest daughter, when she was really young, tried to swipe our TV. Oh and my just, goodness! And she just couldn't believe that it didn't move. You know, she was like really frustrated. And when we were younger, you could see the swipe marks across the TV. Mm. That we often try when we weren't home, or or you know when we weren't looking. Or, I saw that with a magazine, Todd. I mean, it's like a cliche. It's like something out of a dystopian, you know, Black Mirror episode or something. But in a, in a, at a cafe before the pandemic, I saw a, a toddler with a magazine in, in front of her trying to swipe, trying to pinch to zoom in on the magazine and being confused about why the magazine didn't zoom. Um, so so what, you, what is your thinking then while we're on adolescence and kids and social media about how to do it? Because, I mean, my... My understanding of 14-year-old girls is that they will continue to inhabit a space of self-judgment and, and peer comparison as much as they are able to. And therefore, if they have a device in their pocket that, that connects them to their bullies, their peers, their friends, their sources of gossip and sources of self-criticism, uh, that will supersede whatever else is going on in their life if, if, it's, if it's available to them. How do you counter that? Uh, with difficulty. Uh, so a, a couple of things. One is setting, I think I mentioned it before, but setting some realistic um, non-Luddite parameters around usage. First of all, delaying usage for as long as you can. If you can do that and you're able to do that and the schools indirectly are not enabling by making them use their iPads, making them use their iPhone. But if you can do that, delay as long as you can because the brain doesn't fully develop until the mid-20s. The longer we can protect it during that period, that sensitive, adaptive period, the better. So delay as long as you can. If you if you get to the point where delaying is, a, is no longer realistic, then setting some guidelines and parameters. And one, one parameter we put on the girls is around time online. We try to limit the window, allow them to have the window, but specifically we limit the window when the child's brain is most at risk. And here's what we know from the science. We know that when nighttime comes, and, and we know this as adults, we often feel uh, more blue. We often feel a bit more sad or serious as nighttime comes. Well, in the child's brain, they basically switch off their prefrontal cortex towards the nighttime and and sort of live from metaphorically their their amygdala which is the emotional center of the brain so they move from the rational prefrontal cortex to the amygdala the emotional center and this makes them really vulnerable it emotionally and it makes them vulnerable to bullying it makes them vulnerable to comparison and so we try to close that window as as best as best we can and then the other thing that I specifically try and do with my girls, my teenagers, is I jump into their world. So I'm with them often online. I, I watch what they're doing. I want to see their videos. I want to see their TikTok. I want to see who they're following. And I don't judge them. I ask them why. And hopefully over time with education, they will see the folly in some of the things and some of the people they're following. Because the other thing we know is what we see on some level, neurologically determines who we are and who we become. So curating a healthy environment around the kids in terms of what they see online is important. Mm. How old are your kids now? Uh, 13 and 15. Right in the thick of it. Yeah, they're right in the thick of it. They were consultants on the film. It was really, <laughs> uh, it was, what they see shocking. Did what you I get them a feed? 
two different things. Yes, of course they got a fee. They don't, they don't do anything for free at that age. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and so let's get back to, to body image then and how you think about the interface between social media and tech and the problems of, uh, of body image. So the, the body dissatisfaction, what, what, we, what we know is that the longer time we spend on social media, the more discontent we become, the more unhappier we are. And the main reason is, is comparison. And the problem with comparison these days is back in my day, back in my day, <laughs> back in my day, you compare, you might compare to people on television. Uh, they might be, you know, sports stars, or you might compare to people in magazines that you saw every once in a while that you, you got or you searched out. Today, our kids carry around that multimedia television in their pocket and they're constantly being bombarded. On it. So they are comparing now more than ever. And the problem with that comparison, there's two issues. One, they're comparing to these people called influencers. And influencers are more relatable to people online because you think they're like you, because they're not superstars. They're not, but often these influencers are the most augmented. Yeah, they they have not just with surgery, which is hugely popular, but also with filters. And you rarely see people for who they are now. So again, it is an education. It's just like teaching people that Photoshop exists in advertising. It's teaching people that most of what they see online is not real. I think when people hear that, they think, "Well, yeah, duh." Like we've we've had this conversation. We know, like people. I, I hear this a lot, like, you know, you're underestimating how sophisticated media consumers are, especially younger people. Like, we're old fuddy-duddies. We're like, oh, well, everything online must be real. But if you're 16, of course you know that people are air, airbrushed and photoshopped and you're playing with the media in this quite sophisticated and nuanced and meta and ironic, ironic way. Do you think that's true? I think there's one thing to know and there's another thing for it to have any impact on your decision making. Mm. Uh, and that's through education. So there was a study in Germany where they actually put underneath, underneath all the print ads that this image had been altered. It, it, it was photoshopped. But the results, the levels of dissatisfaction still skyrocketed. Right. Because right. there's, it's one, it, rationally, it's one thing to understand. It is, you know, obviously people are changing their photos. But what we really need to understand is what is that impact on our kids and on us? When, I mean, uh, uh, you probably know this, yeah. Josh, but one of the reasons that Gruen was, you know, so successful, the, this television show on the ABC was so successful, is because it lifted the curtain on the, on the world, on the matrix of which we live. But the people that are most susceptible to advertising are the ones that believe they are, they're not. Right. Like all levels of propaganda, if you think you're above it, it, you drop your defenses to it. And just because on a rational level, we think we understand how that world works, that doesn't change the impact that it's having. It's funny, isn't it? Even when you, there's, there's some political science research into the fact that you, you can't debunk a claim without reinforcing the claim, that actually in many respects you're better off not, not addressing an untruth at all because the mere repetition of the untruth in the process of debunking it actually cements it more in people's minds. And that, that reminds me a little bit of that, that what we consciously know and what we subconsciously or emotionally are drawn to or repelled 
from uh, are two very different things. And but I'm still confused about why people have different levels of focus on beauty and themselves. Like my partner, Sean, he will notice, uh, you know, a person's eyebrows being off. He will notice the crookedness of his own nose. He will notice like the most bizarre things, bizarre to me. I mean, perfectly normal to him. He thinks I'm a complete doofus for not noticing anything. Like he asks, we're we're talking about, you know, someone who we know whose name I can't remember. And he asks me what color their hair is. I have no idea. I mean, it just, I would not, I can't, I can't tell you what color, you know, my sister-in-law's hair is because it's just not something that lands for me. I'm just not hardwired in such a way that, physicality is 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 at a premium in the things that i'm valuing or noticing but for some people it is do you think there's anything innate about that or is it that we've been raised differently or what both so uh, one of the scientists on my journey said something to me which really stuck in my mind he said genetics loads the gun but environment pulls the trigger and and i think that is a that is an interesting thought you know when we we, we all have these cracks and we, obviously we're all built differently. And uh, for some reason, for some reason, environment uh, can trigger things in some and not in others. And, and the, the slippery slope, and you, you'll see it in the film, uh, it, this all leads to high levels of, 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 of mental illness. And, and, you know, in the film, there's this young man who uh, I'm not going to say he sounds like your partner, uh, but there's the young <laughs> man who had incredible focus on detail. He could remember everything about faces and he saw everything through this kind of uh, featural processing. And what we do know is with uh, BDD or, or body dysmorphic disorder, these people are stuck in featural processing, which means they see features, they struggle to see the big picture. And others see the big picture and have no problem coming in and out of those. Now, you may have that, but it never becomes something harsh in your life, but you your environment, your social media environment, your advertising environment, your television environment could trigger that and make that into something much, much bigger and snowball that eventually into some form of disorder. That's fascinating. But many people, Josh, many people, it sounds like you're one of them, do not have. So we all have body image issues and levels of dissatisfaction. No one is exempt from that. But the level of which we, how we deal with them and the action we take, it varies. There's an interesting conversation that I try to have with uh, my partner and I certainly try to have with my kids that usually doesn't work and I want, I'm not sure why not, which is along the lines of nobody else cares about this thing that you're concerned about in the way that you look or like nobody else is noticing it or nobody else is paying attention. And when I say that, I get pushback from people who are more concerned than I am about other people's opinions of them. And we reach an impasse at which I realize that I'm not actually articulating myself very well. What I, what I mean is not that there's nobody who is paying attention to your own, the own foibles of your own appearance. What I mean is that if they are, you shouldn't care and your life will be much happier if you choose to believe that nobody is looking at what's wrong with you and I can't quite find a way to make that land because the person who is self-conscious about some aspect of their physical appearance is always going to be able to point to some example of other people who are also fixated on it or fixated on it in others or who might notice it in in them. Uh, do you have any solution to what that impasse is? 
You mean your? Are you are you saying your impasse to, em, to yeah, have empathy for someone know. who is dealing with enormous insecurities that were probably triggered, that were probably innate, then were triggered probably by parents or by some level of of, of trauma that they had in their lives, and that manifests itself in a kind of uh, a self awareness that is more acute than someone like you would have. And yes, I mean, I, I guess I'm not understanding what's not landing about the desirability of pretending that nobody's paying attention. But, but for them, people are paying attention, and the person who's paying attention the most is them. And that, and this isn't is that where my point. I mean, isn't that my point? Like, nobody gives a shit about your, you know, your your bad eyebrows as much as you do. So just just like nobody cares. But then they say, but people do care. I mean, otherwise I'll just walk around looking uh, like I'm unkempt, and people will judge me. Yeah, uh, so I, I, I think it's happening on both levels, right? I, I think that the, the person who cares the most is them, and they're projecting it that everybody cares. And uh, so, what I one of the things that I found in making this film with a number of the characters is that deep down there was some level of trauma. So, if you imagine genetics is loading up the gun, uh, something may happen in upbringing with parents or the way parenting happened, not to point the finger totally at parents alone. And then they enter school and then something, but almost everyone had some level of trauma. So, the level of logic that you're talking about is in many ways beyond them uh, because they don't see it, they see it through almost an irrational point of view. So when you put out the road, the clear path as to why A goes to B, they're going, I, I, I just don't see that because the issue they're dealing with is emotional. Mm. I'm not saying you're not emotional, Josh. I know you're emotional. Oh, no, yeah, you absolutely can say that. And you would have a lot of people agree with you uh, that uh, I'm a brain in a vat incapable of, uh, of <laughs> hum- my, my robot, my robot brain doesn't understand human foibles. Uh, and I, then this gets us also into gender because, you know, this is something that is, I think, a self-awareness of how one looks is one of the many uh, characteristics of the gay community that I have never experienced myself despite being part of it. Uh, you know, I'm the I'm the unkempt daddy of the, you know, there's nothing remotely manicured or twinky about my, about my gayness. Uh, and in the same way, the I wonder whether or not this is there's a gender divide here where the conventionally masculine bloke doesn't care about self-image, but perhaps the preening metrosexual does, and perhaps women do. Is there is there such a divide? Uh, historically, there was a, an even bigger divide than there is today. So the the fastest growing area of cosmetics now is male cosmetics, uh, and uh, surgery among men is is skyrocketing. And what we do know is that there there is, without making a sweeping generalization, the research does say does confirm what you just said, Josh, which is there is a disproportionate amount of focus and body dis- dissatisfaction within the gay community. Uh, I know I know that's no big surprise, but uh, and it, it's interesting that we uh, filmed uh, a young woman named Tara. It's it's in the first episode, and she's transgender, and uh, her story was incredible because she talked about, as she described it, both sides of the fence. So as a male, she didn't fit in. She was slightly overweight, unkempt. She just she just didn't she didn't fit into the male world, let alone gender dysphoria. So she didn't fit. She knew that as, even as a man, she, she, there was a struggle for her. 
and and then you add, as she said to me in the film, gender dysphoria, and then you're like, whoa, okay. And then she, as she says, jumps the other side, and she goes, the judgment on the other side was even harsher. Like it yeah. was, it was. She had her feet in both worlds, and both were really harsh. That's fascinating, and I mean. My goodness, can you imagine how difficult it must be if you are trans to try to get, you know, it's funny, there's a, I was talking to a trans person a few years ago about the the Caitlyn Jenner coming out, and she was expressing concern about the extent to which the narrative around trans people in the mass media was, even when they're trying to be supportive of trans people, it's always like, Oh, look, at it. isn't Caitlin beautiful? Caitlin's so beautiful. And also the trans woman in uh, Orange is, is the New Black, whose name escapes me. Uh, she was on the cover of magazines. She's so beautiful. She's so beautiful. And this trans person was saying, she was saying, look, I've never passed very well as a woman. Uh, you know, I have always felt like I'm kind of an ugly woman and I still look a bit masculine and therefore, it's a bit offensive to me to see all the celebration of trans people being framed around how well they're passing and how sexy they are as women. Can't we find our validity as as trans people and also as human beings outside of whether or not we happen to look like the gender that we feel we are? And I thought that was an interesting, interesting take. It opened my eyes to how stressful it must be to be, be constantly focused on your appearance when you you're you have gender issues and this was what you just said there's an excellent documentary called disclosure which was an inspiration for me around trends exactly what you're talking about but what you just explained was the reason i decided in the end to include her story and it, and her story is included not because she's uh, uh trans but because of this concept of passing yeah because some view so there's two sides to that right some view passing as nothing more than conformity to a beauty ideal that has been created by corporations and organizations to justify the need to have only two genders to sell huge amounts of products and services. Yeah. And other people like Tara, they just, well, Tara's explanation, I just want to fit in. Yeah. And, and it's an extraordinary story because you go, whoa, okay. So the beauty ideal is so powerful that this sort of this thing that we have created in advertising and in media the, and, you know, this thing, which I take from what you said, in some ways you consciously or unconsciously rebel against is so powerful that it pushed, it pushed Tara into getting facial feminization surgery, which is a nine hour surgery that we filmed, a nine hour surgery that costs $30,000 that's not covered by Medicare. Wow. It's an extraordinary story. It's a story I'm super proud to tell. And I know there'll be huge controversy around it. I, I, I know that. And, and, but it's a voice that I wanted to have in the film because I thought that it's an important voice and a voice worth listening to. What do you make of the, of the state that, that gender is in in flux at the moment as the father of, uh, of teenage girls and as someone who, through your work on Body Hack and elsewhere, has sort of dialed up your own masculinity, these very conventionally masculine uh, experiences that you've had, like you mentioned, you know, being embedded in Iraq and, and so on. And yet we're at a moment where 
the gender binary is being disputed, you know, questions about gender being a spectrum, a certain anxiety and loss of uh, and sort of rootlessness of masculinity, you know, conversations about sexual picadillos in Canberra, well, more than picadillos, sexual assault and even rape in, in Parliament House, uh, and the crisis of, you know, young young boys not knowing exactly in a post-MeToo world how to deal with gender. I mean, there's a lot there, but do you want to start teasing open that crack? <laughs> I, I think on some level, it's a huge question, Josh. Uh, I think on some level, on a, on a, on a, I'm going to say, uh, not, I don't want to say superficial, but by the nature of uh, a two-hour film, it is superficial. Uh, we try to tease it apart in this documentary, and we do it through the framework of the beauty ideal which is an ideal that is often fabricated and created and, and, and curated by corporations to make people feel insecure so they can sell them products. And that beauty ideal becomes a stereotype uh, for genders. And, and some people, like Tara, do not fit that stereotype and therefore struggle often a lot of times with, with mental illness and, 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 and often a huge amount of depression and sadness you know, that comes from just not fitting into that. That has now been challenged. And I think it is uh, being challenged more and more, and and it's not as as binary as you know, pardon the pun, but it's not as as it was in the past. But that doesn't. It's still the lag effect of corporations and and structures in society. The lag effect of catching up to this. It it's it's huge, and a lot of people are left in the wake. You know of that change. I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword. I mean, on the one hand, the lag effect is huge and corporations are slow. On the other hand, it's very easy for corporations who get spooked by online Twitter mobs and public shaming to jump all the way into whatever the latest fad is and start declaring things about, you know, uh, trans women are women or, you know, there is no gender binary or whatever the hips Yeah, I mean, I, I remember is. I remember we covered it on Groon. Pink is profitable, right? You know, right, and yeah. uh, and and I remember pink being used in everything. You know, at one stage in the marketing because it was pink pink wrapping, you know, or pink washing or whatever. Yes, so the, the corporations are always sitting on the edge. Some some of them with triple bottom lines and concerned about society, but they're built to make money. They're mm. built to find the, the the kinks. They're built to find the weaknesses that allow them to exploit. Uh, often our mental state to sell us things because what we do know is an insecure customer is a more profitable one for the for the reason that they think they need something to complete themselves. Mm. But when you talk about the the uh, me. Uh, I mean, I'm best to speak for my own life and not on behalf of you know this massive massive issue. But you know, you mentioned about me doing these kind of manly things and going yeah. into the war zones and things. But but my girls don't live don't see me like that. Right, so in my house, it is a bit of a reversal. Where Naomi uh, is the is the is the kind of dominant character. Is she is the she she is the alpha female. She's the alpha in the house, and and I'm not. Uh, so <laughs> I'm much softer. I'm much more with the girls, and and I'm into jet jet likes makeup, and uh, I'm, I'm down with that. I'm like, okay, well, I, I want to understand your world as well, and I want to be a part of that. And if I can help, and if I can do things with you, then I'll do that. Where Naomi is no makeup, um, you know, she's not into how she looks. She doesn't buy brands. She doesn't, you know, she's she's the opposite. So in my household, uh, I think a lot of people would be 
surprised thinking that I'm off doing all of these adventure things. But in reality, the hero of my household is Naomi. Mm, mm. But do you feel a certain sensitive side that's coming out in your family life that is in contrast to or conflict with or complement with the uh, aggressive masculine side that's coming out when you're on the road? I've never felt that I fit into that aggressive masculine side. I've never felt that that's an ideal that I never wanted to live up to or or be or um, I never. Well, I why do you spend to... so much time exploring it? Was exploring which though? Well, like, I, I suppose your masculine side. I mean, a lot of body hack is about tapping into these extreme experiences of physicality, which are traditionally associated with masculinity. Uh, I, I don't know. I've never associated them with masculinity. I've never really. I, I saw body hack as. Uh, there are extraordinary cultures out there that exist and there's lots we can learn from them. So I'm going to just drop myself in the middle and, and see how I go. And if you enter those cultures, as you know, as someone who does this as well, if you enter those cultures wrapped in your masculine cloak or your overcompensating, you know, masculine mask, you're going to get nowhere because they're not, you know, they don't open. Most people don't open to that. They close to that. So, uh, yeah, I, as to the underlying question as to why I like to test myself uh, in different areas, that completely comes down to my my own insecurity. What is that insecurity? This is a combination of many things. When I was young, I always thought that I needed to uh, to to prove myself. You know, it started with money. When I was really young, I, I just was so scared of not having money because I didn't have it in my family that that's all I wanted was money. I carried this insecurity around of being poor. Then, you know, I I had success in my life. And then I I carried this insecurity around of I'm not good enough, you know, that it's 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 temporary. And I, I remember, I remember I'd spent my Young adult life climbing, mountaineering, it was my passion. I did so much of it. And uh, it's, I just, I loved the suffering and the extreme nature of it and the physicality of it and being innate, all of that. And then I, I eventually decided to climb, you know, I guess decided to climb a cliche in search of an epiphany. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I decided to climb Everest, you know, when I was in my mid-20s. and uh, And I did it. And I remember I stood on the top, you know, 8,850 meters. I had lost 15 kilos, the sight in my left eye. I hadn't eaten in, I can't even remember how long, but I think I had a Mars bar for a week or something. And I had very little to drink. I was totally, totally finished on the summit. And I stood there and I was lucky. I was by myself and I could see the curvature of the earth off the Tibetan plain. And it, it was amazing. And then I remember distinctly thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> and the answer to that is fear, is my own fear that I've been dealing with my whole life. You know, I mentioned some of them to you. And then and, 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 and facing those fears, I, I felt better. <laughs> I felt better. Mm. Uh, but that moment in my mid-20s changed my view of, of you know, of fear in many ways. I, I, I started chasing it less overtly with physical things, although body hack did unfold like that, but it's only because of my own experiences. But I, I started inwardly trying to face my fears through meditation and through under frameworks of understanding like different religions or whatever that might be. 
uh, I changed it from a physical pursuit to a mental pursuit. And it's a pursuit I'm still on. Was it anticlimactic climbing Mount Everest? Um, I, <laughs> no, it wasn't. I stood. You had to think about that. Yeah, because it's because it, it is the highest point on Earth, right? So there is there is going to be a, an element of you know I've done it, you know. Now there is a an element of that. But when you're at eight, uh, when you're at eight thousand, almost nine, you know, nine vertical kilometers in the air, your ego is, is sort of pushed aside in, in the spirit of survival. Because right. you are a third of the oxygen of sea level, so you're dying every second you're up there. I mean, you are not, you're not like adapting, you're dying. You, no one adapts above 8,000 meters. It's physiologically impossible. So everyone dies equally up there. So you're, you're thinking survival. You're not, uh, you don't really, you don't really realize what you're doing until you start trekking out and then they start laying things over your head in every village and making you chug a beer. And, <laughs> and then, then you realize, and by that stage, you're so pissed, you don't even know where you are. <laughs> and did you, when you talk about reaching those, those heights of physical endurance, was when you now reflect back with the lens of body image, have you been through periods where you were too fixated on your body? Uh, yes, uh, off and on. I've always, I, but but in, I've always had a functional lens to my body because I was adventuring as a kid. You know, I was climbing sometimes three times a year around the world. So I, I always had a uh, viewed my body not so much from the aesthetic, although nice to have, but from the function because it became a tool for me. So I obsessed about that tool. Yes, I would train hard. And even for body hack, what I would do is I would adapt my training, um, adapt my training for the adventure. So if I was embedding with um, the, the Iraqi snipers in Mosul, I knew that we would be moving low to the ground and carrying packs. So I trained myself in a safe environment at home uh, to do that. And, and so, yes, I did become obsessed with the functionality of adventure. And the thing with adventure is it is a great mirror, you know, it is a great mirror and uh, because it's, it can be harsh, it can be beautiful, it can be ego driven, or just, it can be, um, you know, sad in its reflection. The, but, I mean, the reflections of adventure and the, the, the anticlimactic or otherwise nature of climbing Mount Everest, these kinds of things bring us to another aspect of social media, which, uh, which, which I'd love your thoughts on, which is the, what it's doing to our head to constantly be trying to curate our own existence. Yes. Like I, I remember I was backpacking around India not that long ago, not when I was a kid, but, uh, but once I was a grown up with a couple of Aussie mates and we were in, uh, in like Kashmir in like a remote part of India. And we were at this monastery on a, a hill which we'd climbed up to before sunrise where you could go and hang out. And I spent the most transcendental sunrise listening to the monks chant and looking out over the Himalayas. And I mean, it sounds like such a cliche that, you know, the middle-class white guy going and, uh, and finding spiritual fulfillment there, but I did. And at the same time, my two mates were scrambling all over the mountain 
this was, I guess, pre-Instagram. So it must have been about 10 years ago. We weren't taking photos on our phones. At least they wouldn't have been good enough. They had proper professional digital cameras and were, were scrambling all over it, taking photos of the sunrise over the Himalayas. When we got down to the bottom later that morning, they were spending all their time comparing photos on each other's phones, on each other's uh, cameras. And I did realize like something has shifted here in our relationship to reality that they're comparing their artifacts of an experience that they didn't actually have with each other. And I have nothing to show for my experience, but I actually had the experience that their photos will make people think that they had, but they didn't because they were too busy taking the photo. Yes. And I, I use that as a, as a marker in my, uh, in my brain now for what we're al almost all doing almost all of the time. I mean, back then it only happened when you were climbing up before sunrise in a, to, to look at a, a Kashmiri sunrise. Now it's happening when you order brunch and you're as fixated on Instagramming it as you are on actually tasting it. Where's that? Where's this all going? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little sad, isn't it? When I climbed Everest, there were no, you know, phones. Uh, I wasn't able to do any of that. I just basically had a camera, which I ended up losing. And uh, I, I do have a photo from the summit, but I just experienced it for what it was. But, but, but in fairness, I wrote everything. Because I'm a diary keeper, I, I, right. keep, I, I diary my dreams, I diary everything, I, I write everything down. So I did keep it, but I would not publish that, you know. I, yeah. I and and I don't publish it. I, I tell you, moving to Australia was uh, which I did when I was. Um, I've been here, yeah, in my twenties. Uh, I moved to Australia, and and in some ways, this society, although it's changing, uh, is really really uh, good for what we're talking about or better than the American world I lived in in Canada. Because in Canada, when you tell someone you climbed or in America, you tell someone you climbed Mount Everest, uh, they, they, they often will jump on that in some and, and expect some sort of heroic story or, 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 or they see you through the lens of this achievement of climbing the tallest, you know, and this, the symbol of success where in Australia, you tell someone you climb Mount Everest, they look at you and they under their breath they're thinking, you fucking <laughs> boastful moron. You know, like uh, you just see the you can just see in their eyes. So you don't tell anyone. <laughs> because That's interesting. it's one of the ways of really turning someone off. Uh, because we have this sort of psychological thing around tall poppy syndrome. That's so interesting. I mean, I actually, I even have a teasing moment in my Nova podcast about people who climb Mount Everest uh, on the on the basis of like, you know, it's almost the most childish way to achieve something. It's like a, it's like an eight year old goes like, I want to do something really big by literally climbing to the t tallest place on the on on the planet. And I think there's a part of that sort of cyn cynical attitude towards feats of any extreme achievement in Australia that, yeah, that it's definitely it's definitely literal. Like the amount of time where I have to, uh, amount of times I have to swallow. Uh, it's not like, you know, it's not like climbing Mount Everest and you're just swallowing it. But for me, Everest was, a, a, you know, it was a series of mountains of which that one was not the least interesting because the altitude makes it interesting from a survival perspective, but it's certainly not the most difficult. Um, 
Yeah, but, right. But but the, the the point you're making is these days it's the equivalent of taking your journal and then publishing it, or as you said, not living in the moment, but capturing that moment and 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 publishing it. Mm. And this is one of the things I try to do with my kids. Is when we're on holiday, I try my best to get them to put down. Don't see the sunset through the phone. See it yeah. through your eyes. But the 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 people that need to take accountability for that are the companies that are creating these social share. Because we know that our brain, it, it, it lodges images, visual. We process them 60,000 times faster. It's in the film. We talk about this 60,000 times faster. We remember more of what we see than what we read or what we hear. And so these companies that create these platforms know that. And so they just pump us with these rewards, these sort of dopamine hitting rewards over and over again, which then encourages us to do more and more and put more and more on. And the point I was making earlier about the future is I believe these companies may come and go. I believe Google, potentially Facebook, we will move on to other platforms. Mm. You know, we, but, sure. but what doesn't change is the fundamental behavioral change that exists underneath them. The, the structures and brands themselves will come and go. That's interesting. I mean, it, I, I think what's going to have to change is the the sole measure being the amount of time that we're spending on these websites. Like the the funding mechan the the funding model has to change because as long as their as long as their bottom line is tied to how long we spend on the platform, any I mean, the algorithm is going to be maximized to try to enhance our time on site. And we are obviously going to be more engaged in content that extremifies our emotions, that either reinforces what we already believe or demonizes what we don't, what we disagree with, or gives us something aspirational to look at, or gives us something that, you know, something that triggers us, something that creates a little flutter in our tummy or in our soul or in our mind. Those are the things that are going to keep pulling at us, not cold reason hard facts, boring reality. And yeah. and as long as the incentives are misaligned like that, I think whatever you replace Google and Facebook Facebook with is going to be corrosive to our psyches. We have to find a, a way of aligning what is true and what is humane with what is capturing our attention online. I mean, I personally believe that we need to be protected from ourselves. And mm. I do believe regulation in this area is important, as I believe in advertising. You know, I, I think we all need protection. Because as we said right at the beginning of this conversation, the, the problem is within us. It's the innate tendencies that we have that are being exploited. But, that, but focusing on the people that are exploiting them is, is, is one thing. But it doesn't change often the tendencies that are getting amplified that exist within us. So in many ways, I do think we need protection from ourselves. Now, once you start doing that, of course, then everybody starts thinking, Oh, are we going to be living in an nanny state? And, you know, Australians argue yeah. we already live in an nanny state, but I think left to our own devices, Lord of the flies. Let's come back then, Todd, and we can wrap up with, with this, this sort of element about my, losing weight and my, uh, you know, uh, boot camp challenge and my pride in the way that I look and what the healthy, like, what do you make of, for example, the fat acceptance movement? So it is worth just caveating everything I'm about to say, as I'm an able-bodied, uh, um, white, thin male that doesn't get 
sneered at when I eat pizza in public and, uh, and I can pretty much, uh, buy whatever I want without eyes on me. Uh, I think fat phobia is a massive issue in society. Uh, you see the opening of, um, of the film. We start with a series of kids, uh, in a kind of research format where we have two Barbie dolls. One Barbie doll is thin, the normal Barbie doll, and the other one we made bigger. And almost bar two kids, a hundred percent of the kids when asked, which one do you think is bad? Which one do you think is lazy? Which one do you think is mean? Nearly all of the children from ages three to 11 said the bigger doll. Wow. And half of those kids have never been on social media. That's interesting. Yes. Could so that be an age? is a massive issue in, in society. And it's an issue that we often don't talk about. And one of the reasons, and we, dis we discuss it in the film, is that language is difficult. Obesity, you need to put a disclaimer on it. Uh, fat, some people like and don't like. The concept of being overweight and something being inherently wrong with that is rarely challenged. Yeah. Uh, the medical system often views or, or filters its diagnosis through the lens of obesity, through the lens of BMI, which was created by a scientist, by a mathematician hundreds of years ago before computers were invented. <laughs> so we live in a world that, you know, in, in the part of that matrix is fear of being fat or fear of being bigger or, 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 or fear of what that does. And, and we, that is ingrained in us from our parents, from our schools. It is possible. 100% it is possible to be bigger and healthy. Is that true or is that a politically correct thing that we're supposed to say? No, that's absolutely true. You can be fat and as healthy. I mean, obviously there's a bell curve, right? So there are going to be some... It's the same, Josh, as saying thin is inherently healthy. And we right, know right. that that's not true. Yes, that's not true. So you can be thin and unhealthy. I mean, so a fat person... And you can, can be, be fat and healthy, but it matters what you I just, I just want to make sure that we're not playing with words here. A fat person can be healthier than a thin person, yes. but uh, in aggregate a fat person is going to be less healthy than they would be if they weren't fat and everything well, not, and every other variable was held. Okay. So what it comes, well, well not, that's not true. It is possible to be fat and healthy. It is possible. Well, but, how healthy? Not as healthy as you would be if you weren't overweight. Yeah. But, but so how do you measure health? Right. And that's part of the, what's what comes up in this film is it's often through the lens of BMI, which then says you're obese, which then, you know, based on. No, but isn't um, it true that like heart disease and cancer okay. and, and but you cannot, but it's important, Josh, not to confuse uh, correlation with causation. Okay. So there no doubt is a correlation between being um, uh, fat and certain diseases. Yes, it's of course, but being fat, doesn't like there are plenty of bigger people that are considered fat based on BMI that are healthy. Yeah, I mean, look, BMI has its own problems, I and mean, we don't need to get, go into that. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is obese according to BMI statistics, right? So, you know, anytime you're working out, your the BMI is going to be off, and you might, uh, you know, you know. But failing, I, I, I guess I'm torn between. On the one hand, the desire not to fat shame anybody. Uh, people should be allowed to be whatever size they want to be. On the other hand, noticing, for example, that in the United States, there's been very little public health information during the pandemic about the importance of eating well and losing a bit of weight. 
And something like more than 80% of COVID deaths among people under the age of 70 are people who are obese. And it's not something that we talk about. It's, it's considered that it bumps up against fat shaming. And I'm just wondering if there's a needle to thread between not wanting to fat shame people, but also not wanting to be full of shit about the fact that ideally, if you're overweight, you'd probably be better off if you lost some weight. I think it, it's, it, I think the focus should be on functionality and health, right? So I, I think that you can, I mean, look at some of these, uh, I don't know what's a great example, but uh, I, I remember these, uh, uh, I went and embedded with the sumo wrestlers in Japan. Mm. And by most measures, they were healthier and fitter than me. Hmm. By most measures, like so, but but you know this this lifestyle of of overeating to that level is is not going to be healthy in the long run. But if you measure it by their physical ability or their functionality, they were much healthier than me, and not all of them were fat as we would see fat. Some of them were just bigger, right? Yeah, interesting. It's a topic that I think is is again, as you mentioned, it's not talked about because of the risks of talking about it. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in, in this, and I know this is going to send a lot of people perplectic, is uh, we talk about set point and, and the controversy around set point that the hippocampus predetermines, like a thermostat in our, in our brain, predetermines what our set point is, bar a few degrees on each side. And that it opens, so the dieting, is basically opening a window of which your thermostat will readjust eventually to your set point. And that dieting does not change the set point. The only thing that changes the set point is someone who kind of works on the, the dial, a mechanical. And, and in that case, we looked at bariatric surgery. Hmm. And so we explored it from both sides. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'm going to let you, you go here, but I just want to wrap up with, a, with any future thoughts about the way that we can kind of ensure ourselves against dysfunction in how we think about ourselves, how we can be gentler with ourselves. Uh, awareness. So uh, I know it sounds obvious, but uh, having a better, just like understanding how advertising works, it's also understanding the details of how the, the, the other parts of the matrix, social media and television, how this all works and teaching kids at a young age. One would argue that, you know, media literacy today is as important as the other disciplines we're learning in school, uh, because that's we need to try and make behavioral change because we know that most corporations are focused they're focused on some level on making money. Although I have to say some are becoming more responsible with triple bottom lines and trying to do their part. But we as parents uh, can take it on to help educate and, and, and teach our kids about the world in which they're in. And I think a big part of that is getting in with them and, and understanding it, trying to understand it through their eyes. Todd, it's great to talk to you. Mirror Mirror is on Channel 10 uh, Wednesday night. And then when's the second follow-up? It's Thursday night, so they're back to back. Back to back, fantastic! Come back anytime, and we'll explore everything else that you've uh, <laughs> that you've done with your life. And we won't talk too much about you. It's a relief. <laughs>